Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello, welcome to Historically Thinking. I am turning the tables on Dr. Albert Zambone today. I'm Carol Adrian, and I'm the author of a new history book called Healing a Divided Nation, How the American Civil War Revolutionized Western Medicine. And I am here with a man who has done an amazing number of interviews and conversations with history book authors, Dr. Albert Zambone. And hi, Al. It's so nice to be on this end of the conversation. (laughs) Carol, this is deeply unsettling. (laughs) (laughs) I should say that... By the time, I don't, I don't know when this will launch, but hopefully by the time people uh, hear this, they'll have heard our conversation about your book, Healing a Divided Nation, about medicine, nursing in the United States and how it changed with the Civil War. So I, went, I want to say this was your idea, and I'm, now I'm not sure why I went, wanted to go along with it, but here we go. You're going to ask me questions. You're going to ask me about the secret questions about the podcast. I am, and I think it's going to be very interesting for history buffs like us. So now you have done, it looks like you are coming up on almost 300 podcasts. Yeah, this is, we're, we're recording this on August 19th, and we have, we're now up to 275 episodes. So we will reach 300 uh, if we get... We've missed a couple episodes this summer because of holidays and, and things. And apologies to listeners for that. I should have announced it in advance. But I guess, um, you know, we we drop four to six a month. So we probably will reach 300 by the new year. That's a lot of work. Now, what what got you started doing the podcast? Um, so I don't know how much I say about, I don't know how often I've referred to this in, in the in the podcast. So if you've been listening for 275 episodes, which very few of you have, I apologize. But uh, so I was a, um, a visiting assistant professor at Augustana College in Rock Island, Illinois. And uh, we had um, the best department of history that I could ever imagine. Um, wonderful people, um, a wonderful attention to thinking about how to teach history. And um, I thought that I would um, do a podcast. Everyone was doing, well, it was just 2014. Um, people were starting to do podcasts. It was kind of at the, um, I think <clears throat> there was that, die off the podcast started on 28 2008 i think the first time i listened to them i still had like uh you know old school an actual ipod but uh then they had kind of faded away but there were certain ones that had stuck in there and i was really impressed by what a podcast could be because i think i've quoted the German Catholic philosopher, Joseph Pieper before, who said that truth's natural habitat is in conversation. And I would like to believe that. Um, I've never heard that. Yeah, it's a good one. Yeah. And I, one of the things I enjoy teaching the most are Plato's dialogues. And when you teach the dialogues, you have to think about why did Plato write dialogues? And um, why did he decide to do it this way? And there was, it's, I think, significant that the first preserved extensive works of philosophy are conversations. They're plays, in effect. They're plays with, with maybe just two people, maybe a two-man, three-man, three-woman, five-person play. But they're plays, and they're, and they're conversations. And that Plato was saying something, I think, important about how we arrive at truth. Um, you know, the the best classes or seminars are tutorials. They're conversations. Um, they're not lectures. And one of the things about our, our department was we were an anti-lecture department. Um, and we preached the gospel of no lecture. 
and which is a hardship for me because I like to perform. Um, I like to be a ham. And it took me, you know, maybe a decade. Well, even when I could do it, I realized it wasn't the best way. A lecture is a lecture in the hands of a good lecture and an attentive and interested audience is brilliant. But otherwise, it's the worst possible means of conveying information. Um, Less so than a conversation? I think, um, because uh, conversations, people cannot always remember the facts that they hear in a conversation. But I think conversations are much more important as a stimulus to um, further reading, further investigation. I think also conversations, certain things. Well, I, I've noticed this as a student and then as a teacher that um, God help the professor who says something in the course of a conversation in his or her office to a student. They will remember it. And, it's they, and they remember the stupidest things or the strangest things I did. And I now I rec I recognize <laughs> other things that, that people remember that I said. Um, and that's, that's something of the nature of conversation. I, I can't, that didn't, ha that it's because it's interpersonal. So I think the brilliance of a podcast is it gives of an underproduced podcast Sometimes an overproduced podcast, more like a radio interview, doesn't always give this, but that's not completely true. But it gives you the sense of eavesdropping between two people who know what they're talking about, which I enjoy very much. You know, I like that too. Yeah. If I, I like hearing people talk shop who are committed to the craft. I would love to hear... You know, I would pay money to eavesdrop on two Phillies, two guys in the Phillies starting a lineup talking about the best way to steal second. And <laughs> and not because I'll ever steal second or need to know that practically, but I think it would be fascinating. And I think that's what podcasts offer is that eavesdropping. Um, but then it helps that I'm curious about a lot of different things. And I want to find things out. And I think, I think it's attractive. I think it's interesting. I learn from listening to curious people asking other people questions. Um, as opposed to podcasts, which are just about a guy saying something about something which he knows a little bit about. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I can do that. I do that all the time. I do that when I shave. I don't need to, I don't need to listen to someone do that. <laughs> Here's a question I've been dying to ask you since I first started to listen to your podcasts, which are, are all, in your opinion and experience, hmm. are authors easy writers, easy to interview because they are good writers? Are they necessarily good talkers or do you have to move them through a conversation like a tugboat? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no. Um, and it depends. So when I began the podcast, I thought this is going to be great. I'm going to like, I'll do a show on Cleopatra. I don't know. I just pulled that one or the black death. And I'll just get two historians on to talk about and ask them questions about Cleopatra or the black death. It didn't work out like that at all. Um, you couldn't, I couldn't herd the cats. First of all, I couldn't get more. I, my concept was to have always more than one. And that was very purposefully along with the sort of, I don't study just one source for something. So I need to have multiple sources. And the idea was also, I wanted preferred people who sort of disagreed because that is a livelier it, it is, but it's sort of, that's the sort of my philosophy of history is that, that well, it's not mine. It's uh, the one I've learnt is that Peter Gale, who's, uh, he was a Dutch historian, G-E-Y-L. He said, history is an argument without end. And that, uh, or as my teaching sensei, Lendl Calder would say, when we do 
when we cover history, we cover over disagreements. So that's one of the problems with the sort of the survey lecture for Europe, Asia, the United States. We generally say, well, here's what happened. But when we do that, history students don't learn their different perspectives on what happened. Um, some of them, and then we could bring some, so we tend to cover over disagreement. I wanted to foreground disagreement and get people talking amongst themselves. What do you agree with? What do you not agree with? That was just too hard to work out. So I fell back on it. Turned out as a friend of mine who does the, has been doing the same thing for decades at NPR and elsewhere, it told me it's a lot easier to get people who have a new book out. Because people with a new book out, and you know this now, Carol, are uniquely excited about talking about their child. You know, that they they have they have spent time with it, they've watched it grow, the labor was atrocious, and now it's out, it's in the world, it has a separate existence, which is kind of weird. People are starting to take from it things that you might not intend, uh, but you're still you're still proud of it. Two years, you might say to hell with you go to college, to go go away. I, I don't want you anymore. But at the moment, you're excited about it. So people with a new book are excited about talking about it. And that's how basically I ended up talking almost rarely do I not talk to someone about a new book. It's just easier to get people. As I've built up, you know, after 275 conversations, it much to my surprise, a lot of the people I've talked to want to talk to me again. Um, and it's easier to have them back to have Pamela Crossley and Suzanne Marchand come back to talk about, you know, uh, causality in history or something like that, or to have Bill Cafaro talk about evidence and, and that sort of thing. So I've, and Alex, and then, and, but we end up talking a lot about books, you know, Alex Mika Berija, who's a fan favorite. He's now, I mean, he, he writes so much. No, he's, but this will be his, he'll, I'm going to soon be recording my fourth conversation with him, but. So it's a wider lens. Yeah, it is, but it, it generally yeah. turns out to be people with a new book. Now I will say the hardest people to talk to are young American academics with their first book. Um, they're very most of them are very uncomfortable and I hope I'm not prejudiced, <laughs> but uh, it's, I don't, it doesn't often seem like it's something they're used to. And I don't understand why. Or maybe they're just coming off semesters of oral exams and finals. Yeah, that could be it. There, that could be it. Um, I, and I have to say my, I have to say it's very, enjoyable on the other hand usually to talk to british academics um i spent four years in england i know the system a little bit i i'm not an anglophile i'm too good a friend of england to be an, or britain to be an anglophile but um i don't saw i can't really say that's why i suspect and here's my hypothesis is that um brits especially the ones i'm talked to have gone through a tutorial system might be at Oxford, Cambridge, might be at Sheffield. Um, they've had to, basically the way that even if there's three of or four of them in a tutorial, it's one-on-one -on -one in Oxbridge. I think for most other schools that have tutorials, it's three or four in a tutorial. But then that means that for an hour, you probably had to carry 15 minutes of it, even if in a four-person. Wow. If you're at Oxbridge, you have to carry the whole thing. And you have to become a good talker. And you have to defend your ideas. So I think that's part of the training that might make it, that make it, might make it why, why it is. Um, so you use two words. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I, I'm jumping up. I don't mean to step on you there, but you used two words I wanted to catch because you talked about argument and story. And this was something that made me look at my own work through different eyes that gave me a perspective I had not had before. And, and I wondered, would you talk a little bit about argument and story? I thought so that was a great. When you were asking about this, when we were exchanging emails about this, you started, you made me realize that I actually have a sort of a heuristic 
um, which like most good history heuristics, uh, you learn, well, the bad part is historians don't often self-talk or vocalize their heuristics, which is actually at Augustana College, we made a big deal out of this uh, about realizing how we do history, talking it, doing a sort of think aloud. And so that students then realize that there is a heuristic, there's a, there's a process. This is true of any craft. I'm not saying science, but any craft. If I'm carving something from wood, if I'm making a film, as you do, there are heuristics that any craftsperson goes through as they're doing their craft. Um, so, and most of the time, Michael Polanyi, the philosopher Michael Polanyi would say, I know, I think it's him that said, I know more than I can say. Um, and we are very bad at saying it out loud. So I realized that the books that I like, the people that I want to talk to on the podcast, first of all, they have an argument. Um, if I was talking to 19 year olds, I would say that was a thesis statement, but I want, I, I don't like to say thesis statement. Uh, that always sounded very ominous or threatening. I want them to realize that, uh, it's an argument. It's a point of view, which they're going to defend. Uh, with evidence. That's what an argument is. Um, and arguments are good. They're good. Arguments are about being human. Humans have points of view, which they express through words. Gorillas don't do that. But then we, we <laughs> dolphins, we haven't discovered what they, if they, they click, they, I think mostly they say, Hey guys, more fish, let's go. You know, but we, we have points of view, which we express in words. And then Lo and behold, we've even learned over tens of thousands of years to defend them with evidence. Um, and so uh, that's, a, that's a kind of a precious inheritance, which I don't want to stop. <laughs> Sometimes, I mean, it's really hard work, which is why we, you know, often don't do it. We just have the point of view instead. But, um, but, but, but that's, an, that's an argument. And every historian needs to have an argument, to my mind. Not all do. That I had one. You have an I, argument. I never thought about it in those terms, but the the uh, common belief for for decades has been that the Civil War did not advance; that medicine remained static throughout right. the Civil War. And when I did research from primary sources, it seemed to me that the opposite was true. <clears throat> yeah. How many fields advanced or were created? Mm -hmm. And I thought when after you spoke about that, I thought. I have an argument. Yeah, and, now we're, so we're, and, I'm going to be talking about your book story. again, but I've been thinking about your book again. Uh, and it's like, I, I have a thing about culture and technology. I think culture is more important than technology because uh, technology is a subset of culture. Um, and I think in many ways, yeah. you know, I, earlier in the spring, we had a, the Great War in Modern Medicine. I forget now, I, I have to look back in the catalog and it was an excellent book, but he, he was he shows a great length. He's a, uh, actually a physician or surgeon in Jackson, Mississippi, who served in the United States Army. So he's writing about the, the Great War and how it changed everything in medicine. It's just extraordinary because all the, but what I realize is the stuff that you're talking about, you're talking about um, basically the changes in medical education, the changes in nursing, I mean, the changes in medical education, I mean, Hopkins Hospital is, what, 1875, 1876. I mean, they're responding to, they're obviously now it's, duh, they're responding to what they've just experienced. You know, the need to change, to have teaching hospitals, uh, nurses, Red Cross, we could go on the list of stuff that you talk about, not to mention, you know, now that there's going to be black men can study uh, medicine uh, and, and women begin to study medicine on and on and on and on, you realize the entire culture of medicine has been transformed. Um, and we could take this forward to like the Abraham Flexner's report about all the bad medical schools. That was like 1910 or so. It was, it was prior to the Great War. Um, but you can see that the entire medical culture has been changed prior to the Great War in order to receive the technological developments that are then that the breakthroughs that are made during four years of horrendous experimentation. Because um, it, as in the Civil War, there was lots of opportunity to practice trauma surgery when a million men are being wounded or killed. There's lots of chance to practice 
psychiatry when millions of people have PTSD. There's, uh, we could go on down the list of, of the things that lead then to changes in medicine. But what I'm seeing now you're describing is a change in American medical culture because of the civil war. Well, in terms of, yes. I mean, so, so I realized, Oh, I'm making an argument. Yeah. You're making it. You're making an argument, whether you're not, whether or not you thought it. No, I, I did not prior to that, but now I like it. Um, now that I know, but you now you need argument, but as you were saying, you need story as well. Now, the right. story support the argument. How's that? Yes. How, what are the dynamics of that? So this is where my podcast is sort of a is not a scholarly podcast necessarily. And by that, so my friends, the New Book Net, New Books Network, New Books in History. They have lots of wonderful conversations, interviews, whatever you want to call them, with historians who have books with very sophisticated arguments. Um, those arguments don't always come with a story or stories. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they don't. Um, I also... Is the story the evidence for the argument? Can be. It, it can be. Else? But it, it's also... Um, History is about change over time. Uh, at least modern, we're, we're not that interested in things like, you know, for 50 years, things changed, didn't change. Well, first of all, that's a damn lie. Over 50 years, things change. We can't, we can't help it. That's just what happens. So historians end up being interested in how things changed and why, you know. Um, quote Lendl Calder again, I, I think he said this on the podcast, you know, the first question that a historian asks is, what's the real story here and how can I know it? Only when Lendl said, or it's, or the historian's first question is, are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah. Only his was a little bit more vulgar than that. Um, but he's from Texas. Oh, wow. So the, um, that's part of knowing an argument. But the fact is, is that uh, we speak in words as humans and we're inevitably story-based. Now there's a very clever book by a guy, I think at Chapel Hill, UNC Chapel Hill, about how um, narrative is bad and we should get rid of narrative. I had um, a guest on at the beginning of the year talking about the problems of narrative, which I agree. Um, the way that we tell stories, we tell stories in ways that exclude others. We tell stories inevitably to make ourselves feel good about ourselves because we're at the, we are psychologically the hero of our own story. That's just the way, it, that's the way it works. Um, nevertheless, it is like trying to explain to a fish, you know, you should really skip that water thing. What's the water really doing for you? Um, Cause I don't think you can get rid of narrative. I don't think you can get rid of story. So I don't want to only have narrative histories. You didn't write narrative history. I don't only have narrative histories. But the fact is, is that people crave story and people crave good story. And people want to hear about how things worked out. Um, I don't want to hear the same old stories. I don't want to hear about Clara Barton, founder of the Red Cross, blah, blah a nurse instead find about your story, which is factual about finding Sarah, Sarah, Clara Barton, who goes out to find wounded men on the battlefield, seeing things that would make all 90% of 95. Okay. Higher than that. Seeing things on a civil war battlefield that would make trauma nurses in today's age vomit. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that she did that. That's a all of a sudden that change. That's a story that changes my perception of Clara Barton and the Civil War and what women do in the Civil War and women's roles and blah 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 blah. So that story is is very helpful. Now I have to say I don't have a lot of people on the podcast who only have stories. Um, they don't have an argument. As they well. don't have an argument. Yeah. yeah, it took me a while as an undergraduate to realize that the job of history is not just to tell the actual story of what actually happened um, and just tell that story. No, I have to make an argument about something. In, 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 
by making that argument, I'll get to the closer approximation of, of, of that. But, you know, there are plenty of journalists, I'll just say it, who write really good histories or that they write really good stories about the past. Um, they're very engaging. They sell more books than I ever will. I want to acknowledge all that up front, but they have no argument. So it's like the Dylan Thomas says in A Child's Christmas in Wales, books that told me everything about the hippopotamus except why. I want books that are going to tell me why, you know, and then how, and maybe tell me the how so I can get to the why. Because if I know how, then I might be able to figure out why, but I need to answer why. That's what the argument does. You know, you're telling me, why does this matter? How did this happen in the Civil War medicine? And I need to know that. Um, I don't, you know, I don't need to read the third book about Washington's attempted assassination in 1776 New York, which probably actually didn't happen, you know, and and also doesn't tell me why. Um, you know, there are eminent people. Um, there are wonderful men and women who have written wonderful books that are very popular, but in the end, and people love them. But in the end, um, you might not know why this founding father or that founding mother or that particular secretary of labor and the something administration, why they did what they did or what they thought, you know? So, and I want to, I want books, I want books to tell me that. Isn't that one of the first questions that we ask when we start to talk as cognizant beings, you know, at two or three, we want to know why, why? Yeah, why? I, th why I think it is. It's, a, it's always a bit of a surprise to me then that a person can write an entire book without answering that question. <laughs> but it's, but it's been done. I, to, the question I was asking myself that, that somebody had brought up to me, um, uh, and I think about frequently is why do we care? Here is this story, but why mm -hmm. do we care? How does yeah. it relate to us or our environment? Um, well, this, this, that's funny that you bring that up because there's a big uh, Twitter story and uh, ker, uh, kerfuffle as they all are about presentism right now, because the president of the American historical association said presentism is bad. And so naturally they're like, 2000 historians who are clambering over each other's bodies to like say, no, presentism is good here. Let me put a knife in them. Um, uh, so the, there was that among historians. Oh yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's, there's a, it's a very small pie. Everyone must have a slice. So it's the, it's, it's the economics of scarcity. So I mean, there's, there's a way in which um, this is a perennial tension. Um, we want a history, everyone writes history that's based on their preoccupations of the present moment. We can't help it. We all do it. Um, so it might be something in our own background. It might be something in our culture that's at this moment, you know, something that we saw in the past that resonated with us. V very few people are complete antiquarians. In other words, you study, you're just interested in recovering the past for the sake of the past, and that's it, and you're just preserving it. So that's, and that's kind of making fun of the 16th and 17th century antiquarians who sort of did that, but they didn't really do that because they were, obviously they also had their own present concerns as they were going to preserve the past and sort of, and, and, and thank God they did because then we might not have Stonehenge or Avebury Circle or someplace like that. Um, but so that's the antiquarian versus presentist, you know, tug of war. And it's been going on since, it, well, it probably has been going on since Herodotus. Herodotus was probably, he was capturing lots of stuff like an antiquarian saying, you know, the Persians, you know, they make decisions sober and then they get drunk to see if they should have made that decision you know or that there are these ants that collect gold in central asia 
or there are like, you know, this is the way they build boats in Egypt, or this is, you know, <clears throat> this is the way the Scythians deal with their debt. Very antiquarian. He's a fact collector, right? But at the same time, he's collecting it. He has an argument. Uh, and he's because, and he's, he's writing as someone who grew up under the Persian Empire and now is not. And he wants to know, how the hell did that happen? You know, how did a bunch of unwashed barbarians on the edge of the world defeat the first world empire? Wow. You know, that's a big question. Uh, and he has an argument about it. But so that's, that's, that's the, that's the presentism antiquarian thing. You know, that's the thing about Twitter. It thinks that everything is new. It's not, it's been going on for a while. And then Thucydides has his own approach. So we've been, this is, this is never going to go away. Um, it's just bad to do, go too far to one direction and, 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 you know, and then forget about the other side. What would you say, I, I mean, beyond the argument and story, in terms of some historical event, personage, something that's, in your opinion, beautifully presented, what would be, do you have a couple examples of like really well done history books that, that you feel utilize all those important elements? Well, I, what I like also are boundary crossers. Yeah. Um, I like, um, so there's a, I think I've said it on the, on the, I used to say it all, say it all the time when I was talking about books, I, I've stopped, but Edmund Morgan, I think in 74, 75 was reviewing Charles Royster's uh, book, a revolutionary people at war and Edmund Morgan, I think probably the historian of the United States America that I admire the most died at, I think he was like 730 years old when he died. But he he died. He was a very old man when he died. He wrote really some exceptional bo books um, and wrote some exceptional small books and wrote exceptional reviews. And his review of Royster said, this is a history of religion, a history of social history. It is a something, military history. It is a, it is a blah, blah, blah history. It is all those histories and more. It is, that is to say, it is good history. So um, there are historical disciplines and I love them all. Um, and it's a sign of my own professional weakness that I am not, don't want, not really confined to one category. Um, what I admire are people who do what Morgan saw in Royster's book. Um, so just this last month, um, had, uh, well, two in particular, uh, Jamie Bellick, who's the something, something professor of Imperial and Commonwealth history at the university of Oxford has written a book, the world, the plague made. And, um, and he looks at like the 300, as he would argue the 300, 350 years of change, the black death of 1348 made to the entire world. Uh, and how it changed, and he finds all sorts of links. And you know, I still don't know. I'm gonna have to reread it. I still don't know what I think about it. It's big. It's sprawling. It's ambitious. You know, he's got a chapter all about the biology of your your Cena pestis. He's got you know stuff on you know it's everything, and it's it's just got it's really good. Um, it's and it's really big. Um, you know, and his first, I haven't read his previous books, but his first two books when he was a professor in New Zealand were about, he wrote his first books were a two volume history of New Zealand from the Polynesian settlement to like, I don't know, Peter Jackson filming the Lord of the Rings. Um, so it, it, when you, when your first shots out of the box are, <laughs> yeah, when your when your first two shots out of the box are, you know, a two volume history of your native country, then, you know, you've got you've got ambition so i but i love that his book for the way that it it's multilingual let's put it that way not literally i mean i like multilingual historians a lot but I, and i guess that would be also a way of breaking boundaries is that you know they're able to do um i have to look way in the back catalog somewhere before episode 70 you know it had a guy who does arabic does spanish does catalan does latin does greek does you know and he's able then to write a very nice history of the medieval Mediterranean as it actually was, which was this multi-ethnic, multilingual, you know, boiling pot of interesting stuff uh, all the time. Um, 
but also this just in July, Elizabeth Leake, who's now at Tufts. Uh, her book, Afghan Crucible, is about the Soviet invasion and occupation of Afghanistan. It has a lot to say to us. But the way that she does it as an international historian, which I'm not clear what that means still, but she has Urdu and she has Russian. So she's able to do, she can look, she's looking at the view from various places, which I love. Each chapter has, is a, has the title of each chapter is a different location. And it's really the perspective or what's going on for in that place and what the world looks like from that place. So it's Kabul, then it's Moscow, then it's, you know, it's Peshawar or it's uh, Islamabad, the Pakistan capital. It's Peshawar, where a lot of the resistance groups headquarter themselves. It's Washington, D.C. It's the, re the major refugee camp on, in Pakistan, on the Pakistani-Afghan border. So that moving back and forth is, you know, is epistemologically, it's awesome um, because you're getting the different, you're getting literally the different perspectives from those places. So I love the way that she mixes that up. Um, so those are just, those are two recent examples. I could keep on going back. I realize, <laughs> I realize when you ask this, when you're asking me these questions, I realized, oh gosh, you know, that tends to be the, I think those are the books I find interesting. And so I end up talking to, to lots of people about them. Well, you have spoken eloquently and interestingly about the importance of place in books about history. And, and I, I never singled that out, but from what you just said, I mean, if you are coming to it with a back, with a multilingual, literally background, then in, in any language, the associations are going to be different or, or the, the quirks of language yes. that, and reference points are going to be unique in each case. So I think it was um, a historian of Nahuatl, of, of Aztecs, who said that you simply can't do cultural history without understanding the language of the culture you're, you're purporting to understand. So um, when you're doing the history of, say, the Spanish conquest of Mexico, it's impossible to just do it with Spanish. You've got to be able to read Nahuatl and understand the perspective of them. I mean, vice versa. I mean, there's no one, literally probably no one who would ever only know Nahuatl and not know Spanish. <laughs> but if they did, that would be a problem too. Um, uh, so, yeah, that's a that's a sine qua non of any kind of cultural history. That's that enables you to do that boundary crossing, and to you know, put on a different perspective. Um, you know, uh, Elizabeth Leake would say, "Gosh, you know, I only had time to do Russian. I couldn't do Farsi as well." I was like, you know, that's like one inflected language too far. You know, that's because that's the perspective from Tehran or for I, I think I, I maybe I think some of the. I, maybe even some of the official documents in, in pre-Soviet Afghanistan, were, were, I think they're written in some kind of, of, of Persian language. But yeah, to do that is, is, is really important. Um, you do an interesting thing, though, because I, I, I realized uh, you have a recent podcast about a, that on a book that's a history of tomatoes yeah. or of, of, of 10 different tomatoes. And you address that with the same gravitas and importance that you do in books about World War One. And, well, and I thought, that's, I mean, you, you chuckled throughout, but but you treated it as a serious subject, which that author had. That was yeah, so that's, that gets to the place thing as well, the um, which I didn't finish talking about. I really, um, I think place is an underappreciated category of history. Um, and I think a lot of other things. Um, so one of the most interesting, not most, I, I can't say it's the most interesting conversation or one of the most interesting conversations, but I had a really interesting conversation with Thomas Guerin, who is now, I think, emeritized from the University of Indiana at Bloomington. And he wrote a book called Truth Spots. And uh, we'll link to this in the show notes. And his argument was, is that um, truth depends or truth, things look different depending upon the place. Now, as he said, he could have written the entire book about Jerusalem because Jerusalem, there are certain places that alter 
the way that you see things. So I do kind of wish you had talked about Jerusalem because there's there's a, this famous Jerusalem syndrome where people kind of go to Jerusalem, they go crazy. Um, they some of them begin to they begin to imagine they might be I don't know uh, atheists or I don't know Unitarian pastors or something like that, but they end up thinking they have a stigmata or that they're Jesus or they're Abraham sacrificing Isaac. It's just like strange things. They hallucinate. I think it lasts. There's actually, a, and if I recall correctly, there's like a sanatorium of some kind set up near Jerusalem just to deal. It's so it's such a regular thing that there's, it's to deal with people who have kind of that perspective, the weight of the place has altered them. Paris apparently does this to people too. Um, I would like to believe that Philadelphia could do it for people. And if it doesn't, we'll hit them on the head. Um, uh, Getty, I, you know, that'd be interesting. I, sh someone should, if, if I had graduate students, I would be sending them off to research this, you know, you know, to like, yeah, pick up the, talk to the ranger at Gaysburg. Uh, there are people who like, you know, go a little crazy. Um, it might, but and he, and so Giran talks about Delphi, the ancient place, the site of the Oracle of Delphi. You know, this religious center, which the Greeks believed was literally the Omphalos, the navel of the world, um, you know, and um, and he but he goes all the way up to um, a clean room, uh, a clean room as a place in which you discover certain truths about microbes, about, you know, the the nature of the the moon rock or whatever. So it's a very clever thing. And I think I still think, as he said, you know, he other sociologists think he's crazy to worry about this, but he's not crazy. Um, things look different when you touch the Liberty Bell. It just is the way it is. Um, and if it, if that wasn't the case, um, you know, are the people in line at the Liberty Bell or for the Moon Rock in the Air and Space Museum are they idiots? No, they're not. It's it's sort of um, it's like an applied sociology lab. It's an applied history lab. You know, we should take it seriously. People have a different experience when they're in a different place or when they touch certain objects. And we dismiss that we're idiots to, if we dismiss it. And we should assess it and take it seriously. Tomatoes, tomatoes are important. Um, and I honestly, I had several people on Twitter saying, oh, Zambo knew about this because he ended up talking about South Jersey a lot you know, where I'm, I'm talking to you from South Jersey right now. Um, when I grew up, the field across the way from our farm had tomatoes. I, you know, grew up watching the harvest, loved watching the tomato harvest. When I picked up his book, I, I, I signed on the dot. I already had scheduled him before even reading the book. And um, I did not know South Jersey would feature so prominently. I knew about the folk legend about the, what's his name? Uh, the, Colonel Gibbon, who supposedly ate the first tomato uh, on Salem County Court. I knew that. Um, I had heard that growing up. But I never, but, you know, I stopped believing that probably when I was 18 or 16. Um, and it made no sense. Jefferson ate tomatoes, you know, Italian. But a lot, I had no idea that, you know, South Jersey was essentially, because of the tomato in the 1820s and 1830s, the Silicon Valley of the food processing industry, um, and which is why I learned from his book. You know, that all this, these changes and innovations and things like condensing soups, like at the Campbell's company, camp from Camden all the way to Cape May, people were figuring out how to ship tomatoes to people, <laughs> you know, so coming up with a new type of can, coming up with new types of water baths. And you, know, you wonder how much, this is, a, this is another thing for some graduate students to study, how much of the early American industrial, I mean, agriculture is so important to the American economy. It makes sense to me that the early, the first wave of the American Industrial Revolution is driven by um, in innovations related to food processing and preparation, canning, and so on. But Survival. that's, uh, yeah, right. And that's tr trying to get food to market. How can, you know, local farmers here get their produce to market quicker, faster? How can it last longer? You know, these are, these are things that entrepreneurs and then the techno the engineers then figure out anyway. So yeah, so tomatoes turn out to be important and it has a lot, and it's just really weird to think that up until the 1840s, 
Italians weren't eating pasta with tomato sauce. That I never knew. Yeah, or (laughs) there's no pizza until late 19, uh, you know, that they're making, that tomatoes are for ornamental purposes, even in Italy. Uh, You know, the idea of people eating pasta with their fingers and that it's in like a, a, a beef broth is just too disgusting for words. <laughs> well, could, there's something else I wanted to ask you to address about um, style. I mean, you see so many history books and you read them. Yeah. What, what, how much do you accord to style in a well-written book? Well, um, a lot. But um, it, I've been expecting it to happen in my lifetime and it hasn't, and I'll probably die without seeing it. But I thought that, you know, back in, God, was it the 80s? 90s. Simon Shama, uh, who's written many books, uh, he wrote um, Dead Uncertainties, I think, um, which was a sort of, he was, playing around it was the postmodern moment he was playing around with different ways of looking at things it was a there's a very famous murder at um harvard university uh, by one of the professors i think it was in the 1840s 1850s and then there was he was playing around with that with the death of of james wolf at the battle of quebec and there was a way that he linked the two very cleverly in the book i thought that was nut at the time because i was in grad school and so you know we weren't going to do that um, you know, uh, this is part of, you know, stabbing, stabbing senior scholars in the back and, and, and pretending it was someone else, you know, um, how Beckett, yeah. <laughs> um, I now, what I now see is, so what I love to read now is creative nonfiction. Uh, and basically before I write anything, I read John McPhee and Tom Wolf, who are both published by Farrah Strauss, Strauss and Garou, but, um, couldn't be more different uh, in terms of their approaches as journalists. Uh, John McPhee writes about rocks. You know, Tom Wolf was writing about, you know, the tangerine flake candy colored, whatever. Yeah. 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 And they couldn't, they couldn't have more different styles, but um, I love to read the new journalism. And I, you know, I'm, I'm, I really think that um, I would, I really enjoy it when a historian is using more tools of creative nonfiction. I think that's the future. I still think it's the future. Um, I don't think it's happening as fast. I think as more historians like me aren't going to be in the academy, but still want to do history um, and um, want to use footnotes, want to want to research as best as they can, but without the there'll be a lot of choices that they'll have in order to have fulfilling intellectual lives um they can't quite do the research program in the same way they did before at least it's going to take even longer if they've now that they if they're doing something else so um but one i think fulfillment they could have is is experimenting with styles that that match the argument and match the story you know i you know, so I wrote a biography of Daniel Morgan, who's a backwoodsman, illiterate backwoodsman, who becomes a brigadier general in the Continental Army and wins an important battle and eventually suppresses the Whiskey Rebellion or is part of suppressing the Whiskey Rebellion in Western Pennsylvania and becomes a one-term Federalist congressman who really believes in internal improvements in canals and highways. <laughs> um but if I could have written that in blank verse, I would have. If I could have written that like a prose epic, I would have. You know, if I could have, if I could have set it to like outlaw country from the early seventies, I would have. Um, but I'm not courageous enough, and no editor would have done that. Um, but it's temp- and I'm not skilled enough to do that. But there's a that's what I mean by trying to have a a style or a. a a method of style that matches what you're talking about. Um, Kate Carpenter has a great podcast called Drafting the Past, which I'm really excited to promote because she is doing what I, I haven't consistently asked, how did they do that? She spends the entire time talking to historians about how they drafted the book, 
how they wrote it, the choices they made. Really interesting. Um, and I highly recommend that podcast. So I'm hoping as her podcast is successful, I'm hoping it will inspire other people who want to be on her podcast <laughs> to come up with <laughs> <laughs> to come up with clever, clever things. Um, not surprising, uh, Megan Kate Nelson, who's been on the podcast a couple times, um, who's an American Studies PhD. Um, I, even, I even think I said this in our in our interview, our conversation about her book on Yellowstone. She's she is much more aware to those things than a lot of historians are. Who don't? She spent a lot more time in literature, but I wish historians would spend more time, you know, with creative nonfiction, with novels, you know. Um, uh, and 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 learn some of the tricks of the trade. I'm I'm trying to at least, and I and I think um, when I taught writing at I, at Augustana, I, you know, as a newbie, you always uh, you teach writing, and that was wonderful. I wish that was the that's the class I miss teaching the most is is writing. It's such a lot of fun, and I think that when you I think historians. Not that they don't have a lot of other things to do, but I shouldn't neglect the opportunity to do that because I think that it gets you inside your head. It gets you inside your writing head. It does, and it's so important. When you mentioned Tom Wolfe, and and I instantly thought of, of the story he wrote about the custom cars. Yeah. And I read that in college. Yeah. And his style was so distinct and so compelling yeah. It will ruin. It ruins you for a while. It really does, and yeah. uh, and I but, think I, I have read a lot of history that's very dry. Mm -hmm. But you're right. When there's, you know, when it's creatively written and presented, it's much more memorable, and, yeah. and it pulls you in. I think. Now, I don't. I mean, he famously had writer's block, and then wrote a letter to his editor, Esquire, dear John. And then he just went off stream of conscience. What became the classic Wolfian thing? Um, yeah. But and then he, and then the editor supposedly just cut off the deer and the sincerely and published and, and published it. Um, yeah. That might be that might even be partly true. Um, but you know, it's liberating to do that. And I, I'm 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 still toying around with. Uh, I occasionally to keep my pen, you know, keep my fingers in. I write what I call first person histories. And I'm trying to, uh, Diana Ackerman, I think it is, who's, is it, who writes, a, she writes a lot about natural history. Uh, I used to teach her essay on, she wrote a beautiful essay about hummingbirds. And um, I began to, and I, I would, the way I would teach writing, I would have students like copy it, uh, but use it for a different topic. And I was showing the way that she made transitions, how that she was moving in from close to far away to close, you know, you know, anecdote, historical anecdote here, historical anecdote, back to personal anecdote, you know, and it's um it's a good writing exercise uh, for them, but also for me to occasionally write that. So you know, sometimes I write about like uh, sand, you know, because uh, if I'm writing about South Jersey or Virginia, I might write about ham. You know, and and talk about ham and things like that, and then you start to make connections. You know, um, and it's uh, it's it's good. It's just a it's a it's a very good way of, of doing that. So you don't have to. You could. I haven't. Tr I, I've avoided Wolf lately because I don't want to start. Because when I read him, I start writing like him, and that I, I have Me to. Th I, I have to throw that away because you can't. I can't do that. Um, but um, but I should, and I should write something in a Wolfian style, but I should, it has to be my own style by, by this time. I have to say, John Shelton Reed, who's been on the podcast, he's an emeritized sociologist at UNC Chapel Hill, eminent sociologist of, of Southernness. And, you know, the first time I encountered him, I like read him and I, I pulled all his books off the shelves in the Alderman Library. This is like 20 years ago at UVA and just went and read everything. And he ruined me for like a year. Um, because he wrote a lot of popular stuff and he would write serious stuff, but the serious stuff was a lot like his popular stuff, you know? Um, so, so when as he's, you know, doing his sociology of the South, so. Well, it becomes so much more palatable when, when it's, when it's fun to ingest. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, it is. And there, there, there could be more of it. There could. Well, as we get close to wrapping wanted to say, are there any recent or classic books 
um, if somebody is, is beginning to venture into the historical uh, venue of books, is there anything that you would recommend? <laughs> I mean, uh, or <laughs> one I or two. Know. I don't know where to begin. I just, you know, start with our back catalog and, and, and work through it. Um, I'll plug. Um, so what I'm reading right now is um, what I've been reading. Uh, what I was reading at the beach was um, two guys I've had on the podcast who now have a very, very big, big podcast. The rest is history. They are now, they are two, two Brits, uh, Tom Holland and Dominic Sandbrook, both well-known in Britain. Um, I think both of them have done BBC specials. So when they start a podcast, they go from zero to 100,000 very quickly. Um, not, I'm not jealous. I am. Uh, but they, <laughs> and so I'm like, uh, uh, they're like the Tesco and I'm still like a country general store by comparison, but they're great. I love those. I love them. Um they're wonderful, and I've learned a lot from them um, in their writing as well. And um, both of them write. What I love is projects. I love projects, so I have to say I realize I have a weakness for it. I like people. So I mean, let me ask you this. Let me turn the tables on you briefly. Um, did you discover that you were writing this book to figure something out? No. <laughs> okay. Whoops. <laughs> so why did you write it in the end? Why didn't you just do a film about it? Because you're a filmmaker. So you wrote right. a book instead. Well, I, I wrote a book in addition. Yeah. Okay. But the idea when I, when I stumbled on the idea, uh, just briefly, my, my mom, who was a journalist told me that Philadelphia has more civil war statuary than any city in the country. Good. And I was working on a different documentary and I thought, huh, Philadelphia Civil War, I Googled. And I couldn't believe the story that came out. And mm -hmm. so I, I, it was so huge and no one had done it. And I, I felt that it had been, to use an old fashioned word, vouchsafed to me. Yeah. And yeah. So there's, a, there's, I, a whole, there's a whole book, by the way, to write about Philadelphia versus New York in the Civil War. You know, what became the I mean, Philadelphia is the last Republican city machine uh, until the 1950s. And there's a reason for it. And it's the Civil War, I think. And, and of course, and, and New York, you know, the what's his, was it uh, Fernando Ward, the, the mayor who wanted to secede from <laughs> the United States? You know, I mean, there's, there's, there's something like that. But anyway, yeah, so that was about safe to you. So you had to do it. I did. And then I, I, I got an unexpected offer to write a book about the same subject as we went into COVID. And, but different things came out to me. And I, I think the strongest thing that affected me that I felt like, what, what can I give this book that will be giving something important? And it was heroism. The mm -hmm. heroism of everybody, professional or volunteer, who worked in Civil War medicine and the, the image of Americans at their best, mm -hmm. working through a fog of grief, behaving nobly, both sides. It was, it was really a nonpartisan thing in my, in my perspective. So I felt, because you're right, I, I hadn't thought about that, but I thought if there's one message that I want to put forth in this book, it is that. It, it is that remarkable, compassionate heroism of Americans. So you had to get that out and now it's out. And there's the feeling of now of, okay. Um, so I, someone had said to me that um, it was an academic that when they're, when they, and I, I wanted to talk to them about a book they had published four years before. And they said, well, you know, really it's an, I, I really wrote that six years ago because of the way the academic presses work, they grind exceedingly mm -hmm. fine and slow slow and slow and so he uh he, he or she i forget who it was said you know i'm not really interested in that anymore i don't want to talk about it i was like you arrogant uh but you know what i understand what they're talking about now because um you had something you wanted to say or you had a problem you wanted i i had something you know i had 
I don't want to talk about Daniel Morgan anymore. I'm kind of done. Um, not that I don't enjoy him. Not that I don't enjoy. I don't mind having, it's not because I don't, don't want to write the book, but it's like I've, there was a problem to solve and something to be said. And now that's done. That's in the rearview mirror. Um, and, but there's another problem to solve. And what I admire people is who have, they have an interrelated set of problems. So Warren Miltier Jr., um, fantastic bunch of books. He was writing his, uh, he was, that was in June. You can look back. Uh, I, we talked about free people of color. Um, Warren was in grad school and he was working on free people of color based in North Carolina. And, but he had done his genealogy and he took his genealogy and went from family history to social history. Cause he realized his family was from Hereford County, North Carolina. He grew up in Virginia. His family's from Hereford County, North Carolina, and they were free people of color going way, 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 way back. You know, and the whole subject of free people of color is very interesting. Um, they go, they're a minuscule, well, there's like 200,000 in probably the American South. I think that's the figure. That's not a large percentage of the enslaved population, but it's ex extreme. As if you listen to the conversation, you'll see, uh, hear us talk about why free people of color were so, you know, extremely important to the entire, uh, to, to the South in, in the slave system. But, um, so Warren, as he's doing, he self-publishes a book about free people of color of Hereford County, North Carolina. And then he writes his dissertation, and that becomes his book on the free people of North Carolina. And he's just finished his free people of the American South, which just came out this year or year, last year. And now he's working on free people of the United States. So there, it's a, it's a Russian doll. You know, it's a, it's a, there's a doll, it's nesting dolls. Uh, and I really admire that. And I admire um, Simon Heffer who uh, we've talked about his uh, already on the podcast in April. We talked about his book. Gosh, now I can't forget the name I'll put in the show notes, uh, his history of Victorian England from 1840 to 1880. And soon we'll be talking about his book about 1880 to 1914 in England. And if Pegasus gets their act together and publishes book on the first world war, we'll talk about that. And I know that in November, he's finishing final volume of a four volumes. Yeah. I mean, big books. He'll be going from 1918 to 1939 because he had to figure out what happened between 1840 and 1939. And he's upsetting a lot of the apple carts. Now, Tom Holland and, and Dominic Sandbrook, Dominic's on what? The fourth volume. He was supposed to write a one volume history of Britain since the Suez crisis. That turned into one book about eight years, and then another book about four years, another book. Anyway, he's up to like four, fourth or fifth book. I think he got up to Margaret Thatcher. He got up to the Falklands. He's up to the Falklands now. And uh, Tom Holland has written a lot of books, but at the beach, I read Rubicon, uh, which is about, not surprisingly, about Caesar uh, and what how Caesar came to be. Uh, what happened before Caesar? Basically, it's 100 to 100 BC to the death of Caesar, and then Dynasty, which is about Augustus and the dynasty he created. It's fantastic, witty, stylish, footnoted. Thank God. I mean, that's it's the kind of history that I want to write. But you know, it was some hilarious, some hilarious asides. Well, as Dominic would say when he talks about the, uh, the how the Falklands War began. began with a bunch of Argentinian scrap metal dealers supposedly coming to South Georgia Island to pick up stuff left behind by whaling fleets. And they went nuts and they started shooting reindeer and barbecuing them over open fires. What's Dominic's line? This was considered bad form, even by Argentinian scrap metal dealers. And certainly by children awaiting Christmas. <laughs> yeah, certainly. <laughs> Absolutely. Wow. That so anyways, I, those are those are books I recommend. I mean, any of those are the kind of, those are a big, enjoyable reads that, you know, if you have any interest in British or Roman history or the history of free people, you can engross yourself in the book. Um, you know, over my shoulder, I've got a poster from when I was a kid of Babar. Um, oh, the elephant. Yeah, Babar the elephant. And I, I can remember like some of the first you know, gripping nose in the book 
riveted attention was reading about Babar. You know, well pleased with his purchases and feeling very elegant indeed. That's what it says. I only have to look at it, I know, because I would say that to myself because I thought that was wonderful. And, you know, we're always looking for books like that. If you have that experience like that when you're four or five, when you can read a book, you know, first read a book, that's the experience that we want to come back to. And what I look for in a history book is that experience plus an argument. So then I have the thrill. So then it's like watching a tennis match. I don't even like tennis, but the duel of tennis and the click, clack, ta, 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 that's exciting. And that's what you see in, in a history book. You, in a good history book, you get all those things together. You do. And, and I think that your podcasts are a wonderful way to get introduced. It, it's like sampling all these different books. So thank you so much for your time and observations today. It was inspiring and illuminating and really it's very, very it, interesting. So. I, it's, it's, a, it's a little depressing to see how I let myself go on my own podcast. Obviously, for I've been wanting to do this for years. Oh, well, I'll have to do it again. Well, but um, anyway, please, please join out next time. And you want to go to historicallythinking.org to see an incredible catalog of work. And hopefully we will hear more from you about this. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Another, and by episode four, no, 550, we'll talk, we'll, we'll talk about it again. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks, Al. And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend or many friends. Vivian Lundy is our assistant producer. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone, and I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present.